Good morning, church. We began our study in 1 Thessalonians last week. Um, we looked at verses 1 uh, to 3, and this week we're going to continue looking primarily at verses 2 through 5. Uh, so let's turn to 1 Thessalonians, and I'm going to read from verses 1 to 5. This is God's word. Paul, Silvanus, and Timothy, to the church of the Thessalonians in God the Father and the Lord Jesus Christ, grace to you and peace. We give thanks to God always for all of you, constantly mentioning you in our prayers, remembering before our God and Father your work of faith and labor of love and steadfastness of hope in our Lord Jesus Christ. For we know, brothers loved by God, that he has chosen you. Because our gospel came to you, not only in word, but also in power and in the Holy Spirit and with full conviction. You know what kind of men we proved to be among you for your sake. Let's pray. Dear God, we come again. We are a few in number, Lord, and we feel that week in and week out. But we come as eager as ever and as expectant as ever for you to do your work through the power of the gospel, to do your work through the word. We ask this again in Jesus' name. Amen. amen. Um, in an article titled, we need to re reset the rules of cultural engagement. New Testament scholar Daryl Bach writes this. He says, if your life is like mine, then you have been in conversations where something you take for granted because of your faith is not a given at all for the person you are talking to. Walk into almost any space or place and we can see it. Race sexuality, public health, freedom of expression, gender, even aspects of Christian teaching. In many cases, that difference is something that 10 years ago would not have been an issue. Now that shared common ground is gone, and we're, we are being asked to take a few steps back to get to a place we used to just assume existed. We all know our culture has changed. We feel it and see it. Social media shows it. My friends often ask me, why are people so angry? And they are talking about almost everybody, including even fellow believers. What are thoughtful believers to do? How should we then engage? And Bach makes this observation that is true in a an American context, but I believe largely true in our own. He says, in the last half century, the Judeo-Christian net that surrounded much of our Western culture has disappeared. He points to recent Supreme Court decisions, and we see similar decisions happening here in our country. He points to the constant rumblings that we see on social media on any topic that you can pick. And he poses this question to the church. For consideration, 
How should the church function in a hostile new world? He makes this recommendation. He says we ought to study how the early church functioned in an era when it had neither social nor political power, but simply relied on the gospel. And that's what we want to do in the letter of 1 Thessalonians. That's the title of this series, A Glorious Hope for a Harassed Church. Last week we met this church that Paul planted in the city of Thessalonica. They were birthed in a boiling cauldron of opposition. They had no cultural capital, no social or political power, but they had this one thing. They relied on the power of the gospel. And if you recall, Paul was only afforded a little bit of time with this church before he was forced to depart from the city. And as he left, he left with a growing burden in his own heart, And he prayed for them constantly. Would the work of church planting that he started in the city be snuffed out by opposition or by lack of teaching? Well, Paul was able eventually to send Timothy from Athens to the city to teach them and ultimately to bring a report back to Paul. And when Timothy returned with the report, the news was not bad news. It was good news. The church had not been snuffed out. Suffering, yes, but they're faithful, Timothy said. They're an example even to the churches around them in Macedonia. They're weak and harassed, but they've set their hopes on a good Savior and a gospel that cannot be stopped. And so Paul writes to them this letter of encouragement, a letter that we have today as a blessing for the church. And HBC, we desire desperately to be a church that is shaped by the gospel, shaped by the gospel in an increasingly hostile world, but holding forth that gospel. And as we consider some of Paul's opening words here in the beginning of the letter, I want us to see, I believe, three attitudes that we are to be grounded in as we hope in the power of the gospel and seek to engage the world around us. Are you ready? Number one. We are to be, I believe we see, grateful for what the gospel does in us. Grateful for what the gospel does in us. In verse 2, Paul says, We give thanks to God always for you, constantly mentioning you in our prayers. This was a day when everyone was religious. Prayer literally filled the city of Thessalonica, which was on every street corner there would be a shrine or a temple, and it was teeming with places of worship. But the prayer that you would see in the city is different to the prayer that Paul prays in his letters. For the pagans around them, prayer was made to gods of of whom their feelings they were unsure of. These gods, their feelings towards worshippers would be temperamental, benevolent perhaps one day, but sour and angry the next. And so prayer is an attempt in this this kind of religion, to appease, to manipulate, to extract the blessing that you desire. But Paul prayed to a father he knew was loving and always good and from whom comes every good and perfect gift, a God worthy of constant gratitude and thankfulness. That thankfulness is the attitude lacking in the paganism around him. And I say this because scholars note that Paul's letters follow a lot of custom, a lot of customs. 
It was customary to uh, share a wish or a prayer in, your, in the opening of your letter to someone you were writing to. Uh, that we have this from the 3rd century BC. Tobias to Apoll Apollonius. Greeting. If you are well and if all our affairs. You notice the if. If you are well and if all our affairs and everything else is proceeding according to your will. Then many thanks to the gods. What you'll notice in this prayer is the lack of unshakable hope that Paul has in the character and in the intention of his God for the church. And we would miss the great impact of Paul's opening words if we chalked off his prayer just to mere custom. Paul's prayers weren't just a literary device. They set the tone of his letters. And Paul here expresses his unshakable hope for the flourishing of the church placed in the hands of a good and sovereign God, a faithful God. This is nowhere more evident in all of Paul's letters than in his correspondence right here in the letter to the Thessalonians. This whole first chapter is a prayer of gratitude for them. In fact, you could argue that that prayer continues right on into the third chapter. In his dictionary of Paul and his letters, Peter O'Brien notes this. He says, Paul mentions the subject of thanksgiving in his letters more often, line for line, than any other Hellenistic author, pagan or Christian. Are you thankful today? Are you grateful for the gospel? Paul tells us in verse 3 that one of the things he's grateful for is the fruit of the gospel that is at work in the life of this church. We looked at this a little bit last week. He says, remembering before our God and Father your work of faith and labor of love and steadfastness of hope in our Lord Jesus Christ. This is the outworking of the gospel, the work that flows from true gospel faith. And the labor that springs from a heart where God's love reigns. But I, I believe we must be careful to take note of for our purposes today that when Paul expresses his gratitude for their faith that, that, that flows into work and their love that pours out into labor and for their steadfastness of hope, his gratitude is not expressed, at least directly anyway, to the church. His gratitude is expressed to God himself. And this can mean only one thing, that Paul believes the primary cause of it all, this gospel steadfastness and work and labor, the primary cause is God himself. And this holds forth for us the wondrous truth that we cling to regarding our own sanctification, this mysterious coordination between our human responsibility and the sovereignty of God. That God is working in us. Philippians 2, 12 to 13, Paul says to that church, Therefore, my beloved, as you have always obeyed, so now, not only as in my presence, but much more in my absence, work out your own salvation with fear and trembling. And then he says, For it is God who works in you both to will and to work for his good pleasure. 
Paul thanks God, therefore, not just for the grace we saw in verse 1 that defines who they are in God the Father and in Christ Jesus the Lord, but for His grace that continues and causes them and us to become who we are meant to be in Christ. The gospel of salvation offered in Christ alone, it bids us to come to Christ, to come to God as we are. But the gospel of God's saving power through the Holy Spirit means that if you are a Christian, you will not stay as you are. You will be transformed slowly but surely through the power of the gospel. As we meet this church for which Paul is so grateful, I hope that you do not think to yourself that you cannot relate to them. That the godliness we see in this church is beyond your reach or beyond any hope that you have for yourself. If that's the case, this letter won't serve you as I believe God intends for it to do so. They were an ordinary church filled with ordinary people like we are, HBC. And as we approach this letter, we approach full of hope, believing what Paul says in 1 Thessalonians 4 verse 3, this is the will of God, your sanctification. And we believe in God's power to accomplish that work. And we come knowing the truth about grace. As Paul said to the Romans, we are more than conquerors through him who loved us. Do you believe that to be true? If today you are reeling under the, the weight of your sin and temptation, be it lust or anger, despair or a lack of self-control, the one thing that you ought never to say as a Christian is this, that holiness is beyond my reach. I just am the way that I am. That isn't true. We say, as John Newton said, though I am not what I ought to be, nor what I wish to be, nor what I hope to be, I can truly say that I am not what I once was. I am not a slave to sin and to Satan. I can heartily join with the apostle and acknowledge by the grace of God I am what I am. That is true of every child of God. Are you thankful for the gospel that you've received and expectant of what it can do in your life? Number two, we are to be assured that the gospel is for us that it's even for us. Paul's gratitude to them goes deeper than just the gospel fruit of salvation evident in the church. It goes further back to its first cause, the primary cause. 1 Thessalonians 1.4, he says, For we know, brothers, loved by God, that He has chosen you. He has chosen you. Most Christians don't give the doctrine of election the thought it deserves. Perhaps it's, it's confusing to you, or you're nervous because of the, the division that it tends to cause. And yet I believe with all my heart that the doctrine of election is at the heart of the gospel. The very heartbeat of Scripture is the sovereign love and grace of an electing God. And Paul reminds them here of this doctrine in order to encourage them. It's for the most practical of purposes to provide comfort to a church that is facing real affliction, the doctrine of election comes with sweet assurance. 
And it ought to produce blessed assurance in those who meditate upon it. The famous Bible teacher Donald Gray Barnhouse used to use this illustration to help people make sense of the doctrine of election and specifically the assurance that it ought to give. It goes something like this. I want you to try this. Imagine in your mind's eye a cross, a cross like the one that Jesus died on, only so large that it has a door on it. And over the door are the words from Revelation, whosoever will may come. Whosoever will may come. The words present the free and universal offer of the gospel. By God's grace, the message of salvation is for everyone. Every man, woman, and child who will come to the cross is invited to believe in Jesus Christ and to enter into it and to find eternal life. And whoever comes will by no means be turned away, John also said. Well, on the other side of the door, having passed through the door, a happy surprise awaits the one who believes. From the inside, anyone who glances back at the door sees the words from Ephesians written over it. Chosen in Christ before the foundation of the world. So says Barnas. Election is best understood in hindsight, for it is only after coming to Christ that one can know whether one has been chosen in Christ. Those who make a decision for Christ find that God made a decision for them in eternity past. If you are converted today, the whole reason is this, is that in eternity past, God the Father set His affection upon you and purpose to save you in Jesus Christ. But why? Why would God choose me? Many people struggle to believe that God could possibly love them because they look around at their life and they see their struggle with sin. They feel the weight of their failure. Maybe they despair at just looking around them at the church and feeling ordinary or unlovable, flawed or simple, apparently less than everyone around them. But this is just the point. The grounds for God's election is not some standard of worthiness in us. God's choice is not based in us, but in Him. So John Calvin said, God, having chosen us before the world had its course, we must attribute the cause of our salvation to His free goodness. We must confess that He did not take us to be His children for any deserts of our own, for we had nothing to recommend ourselves into His favor. Therefore, we must put the cause and fountain of our salvation in Him only and ground ourselves upon it. And right here in this verse, Paul points to the root cause of God's election when he says to them brothers loved by God loved by God we know that you are chosen unconditional love in accordance with God's own purpose is the cause of election it was true in the Old Testament for Israel listen to Deuteronomy 7 verses 6 to 8 Moses says to them for you are a people holy to the Lord your God the Lord your God has chosen you to be a people for His treasured possession. 
out of all the peoples who are on the face of the earth. It was not because you were more in number than any other people that the Lord set His love on you and chose you, for you were the fewest of all peoples. But it is because the Lord loves you and is keeping the oath that He swore to your fathers, whom He chose in exactly the same way, by the way, that the Lord has brought you out with a mighty hand and redeemed you from the house of slavery, from the hand of Pharaoh, the king of Egypt. It was true of Israel in the Old Testament. It's true of the church today. Ephesians 1, 3, and 4 says, Blessed, blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who has blessed us in Christ with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places, even as He chose us in Him before the foundation of the world, that we should be holy and blameless before Him. In love, He predestined us for adoption to Himself as sons through Jesus Christ, according to the purpose of His will. It is a staggering truth that God should choose to love and save sinners, but that is exactly what He did. And so His love for you and His love for me cannot be the source of pride in ourselves because His love is free and it is spontaneous. It's not dependent on your loveliness or your worthiness. And if you look at your life and if you look at it honestly, you must conclude, I am so unworthy of that love. I am sinful and unholy and falling all the time infinitely short of His glory. But in Christ, God loves us nevertheless. Listen to me. If you have put your faith in Christ alone for your salvation, then God today does not merely tolerate you. He knows you completely, and He loves you completely. And the doctrine of election protects us from the impulse to look within ourselves to find a reason for that love, a reason for salvation. That can only lead to pride or to crippling fear and despair in your life. The reason does not exist there inside of us. The doctrine of election turns our attention outside of us and behind us to eternity past, to a God who loves perfectly with a love that does not fluctuate or change. And we know, that, therefore, that the gospel will work in us because we know that the reason it does is outside of us in the unfailing love of God who is always for us. Are you assured of this? Number three, we are to be confident of what the gospel can do through us, what it can do through us. Paul has made a bold statement in verse 4 by saying that the, the reason for his gratitude is that they know that the Thessalonians are chosen. He knows the Thessalonians are elect. And it shows that the doctrine of election ought not to induce unnecessary doubt in us. People often ask, how can I know that I'm one of the elect? If God does the choosing, how do I know that I'm chosen? Paul's statement makes it clear that we can know, that we can be assured of our salvation. And in fact, the doctrine of election is for the assurance that I know that the God who has chosen me will not let me go. But how does Paul know? How does Paul know that this is true of the people in Thessalonica? 
There is evidence we've seen of the outworking of the gospel in the life of the church. And in verses 6 to 9, there's going to be more specific uh, talk from Paul on this evidence. But in verse 5, I believe there's something interesting that also forms the grounds of Paul's assurance. You know, verse 5 begins with the word because. So what follows provides a reason for, for Paul's knowing in verse 4. And whereas verses 6 to 9 are about evidence in the church, verse 5 is about ev evidence in those who preached the gospel and how the gospel came to them. It's important for us as we con contemplate the preaching and the, the mission and the evangelism of the church because it shows us what the gospel can do through us. Paul says first here in verse 5, he says, Because our gospel came to you not only in word, and I just want to pause there for a minute because it doesn't say the gospel came to you without words. There were a lot of words. In Acts 17, Paul spoke week in and week out, reasoning and teaching, teaching in the synagogue about why the Messiah had to die and to rise. The gospel must come first in word. As Paul says to the Romans in Romans 10:14, how then will they call on him in whom they have not believed? And how are they to believe in Him of whom they have never heard? And how are they to hear without someone preaching? Gospel ministry is always a ministry in word. Ligon Duncan says in his sermon on this passage, he says, Sometimes you may hear Christian leaders say things like, Be the gospel. You can't be the gospel. Jesus is the gospel. The work of Christ on the cross is the gospel. God is the gospel. You are not the gospel. The only way that that gospel can be conveyed is with words because we're having to tell about what God has done. The gospel is not something we do. It's something that God did. So we need to, we ought to stop saying things that allow us the freedom to never have to share our faith with anyone. Things like, Preach the gospel and if necessary, use words. Or I'll just let my life do the talking. Your life does need to back up what you believe in the gospel. But the gospel is a message. And the only way it's going out is in the preaching of the church. That's what we're called to do. We're called to share our faith. But verse 5 provides a confidence in our mission in our evangelism and in our preaching, in, that the, in the truth that the success of our preaching is not in our ability. It's not in you or in me. This is Paul's point in verse 5. He says, because our gospel came to you not only in word, but also in power and in the Holy Spirit and with full conviction. So how? Does the gospel, which Paul says to the Corinthian church, is foolishness to the Greeks and a stumbling block to the Jews, how does that have an effect in the world around us? It is not through us, but the power of the Holy Spirit as the one who calls, Paul says. It's only in that way that the message becomes, as he said, the power and the wisdom of God. The power and the wisdom of God. Paul's boasting and confidence is not in his own power to speak, but in God's power at work through weak vessels. 
And when God calls us to go out into all the world, that call is not a call to be brilliant. It's just a call to be brave. And so many times I've said to Sheree, my wife, on a Sunday morning, what on earth am I doing? What am I doing? Why would anyone want to hear me talk at them for 35 minutes? I've got nothing new to say. I've got nothing new to say. Do you understand the strangeness of this? The strangeness of thousands upon thousands of churches gathered together around weak and ordinary men to be spoken at for 35 minutes or 40 minutes maybe today. But this is not just talk. We know this to be true. You are not here for something new. You are not here for my word, but you're here for God's, and He promises to bless it. It's not in my power. It's in the power of the Spirit who uses my weakness. He uses even my fallibility. Everything I say is prone to error, and yet still week after week, He applies the very word of God into the lives of His people. And the power so that by some miracle upon which I'm building my whole life, you hear the voice of your shepherd calling through the spoken word. This miraculous word, work of the Spirit, is the only reason I ever stand up here at this pulpit. And it's the reason Paul knows and is confident that there are elect people in the city of Thessalonica. And it's the reason he has boldness to speak. He says, because our gospel came to you not only in word, but also in power and in the Holy Spirit and with full conviction. I thought first reading this passage that that full conviction uh, applies to the, the conviction towards repentance that the Holy Spirit brings in the lives of his hearers, but I don't think that's what Paul is saying here. The, the word for conviction here is the same word for assurance, that it came with full assurance. And the very next thing that Paul says in verse 5, it looks like a new sentence in your ESV, but it shouldn't be a new sentence. There's a, a conjunction that was dropped. It should be read like this. Our gospel came to you with full conviction, just as you know what kind of men we prove to be among you for your sake. Paul, I believe, is saying here that we came with full assurance in the message that we had and in God's power through it. And then our lives backed up what we spoke and what we preached. And what about you this morning have your eyes been opened to the glorious gospel firstly of Jesus Christ have you seen Jesus for who he is and Paul would have you cling to the promise that God will work all things to this one purpose this one end that you and I would be made into the image of Christ the gospel will work in our lives and you know therefore that His love that saved you was not a love that you deserved. It's not a love that you earned. And if the gospel has been working so miraculously and made manifest in your life, then why not? Why not in the lives of those around you? The lives of your family and your friends? May we, church, may we commit to be a people who speaks the Word of God, who speaks the gospel, 
May we bring to bear the word that has moved so powerfully in our lives. May we bring it to bear in the lives of others. And may we be expectant and confident in the power of the gospel. Firstly, as we we gather here, as we come together and sing to each other and speak to one another, we, we speak with full conviction and assurance, speaking the truth of the gospel. And do you come prayerfully, praying for whoever is in the pulpit, that God would work in power through the Holy Spirit, not only in your life, but in the lives of those around you. May the miracle of what God does be done among us. And may we be prayerful and expectant as we leave as well. We pray for opportunities and expect opportunities and then take those opportunities in the world as we are brave and follow Jesus. I know I have talked long enough, but I want to share with you in closing the story of the the conversion of Charles Spurgeon. And I'm sure you, you probably have heard this story before. Charles Spurgeon mentioned it many, many times in his preaching. And I want to share it with you as an encouragement to anyone here today who says, I am not smart enough. I'm not powerful enough. I am too weak and too feeble to share my faith and have, it, have any effect in the world around me. That is not true. It is not true. Charles Spurgeon says this, I sometimes think I might have been in darkness and despair now had it not been for the goodness of God in sending a snowstorm one Sunday morning when I was going to a place of worship. When I could go no further, I turned down a court and came to a little primitive Methodist chapel. In that chapel there might be a dozen or 15 people. The minister did not come that morning. Snowed up, I suppose. A poor man, a a shoemaker, a tailor, or something of that sort went up into the pulpit to preach. He was obliged to stick to his text for the simple reason that he had nothing else to say. The text was, Look unto me and be ye saved, all the ends of the earth. Isaiah 45, 22. He did not even pronounce the words rightly, but that did not matter. There was, I thought, a glimpse of hope for me in the text. He began thus, My dear friends, this is a very simple text indeed. It says, look. Now that does not take a deal of effort. It ain't lifting your foot or your finger. It is just look. Well, a man need not go to college to learn to look. You may be the biggest fool, yet you can look. A man need not be worth a thousand a year to look. Anyone can look. A child can look. But this is what the text says. Then it says, look unto me. I, he said in broad Essex. Many of ye are looking to yourselves. No use looking there. You'll never find comfort in yourselves. Then the good man followed up his text in this way. Look unto me. I am sweating great drops of blood. Look unto me, I'm hanging on the cross. Look, I am dead and buried. Look unto me, I rise again. Look unto me, I ascend. I'm sitting at the Father's right hand. Oh, look to me, look to me. 
And when he had got about that length and managed to spin out 10 minutes, he was at the length of his tether. Then he looked at me under the gallery, and I dare say with so few present, he knew me to be a stranger. He then said, young man, you look very miserable. Well, I, I did, but I had not been accustomed to have remarks made on my personal appearance from the pulpit before. However, it was a good blow struck. He continued, and you will always be miserable, miserable in life and miserable in death if you do not obey my text. But if you obey now, this moment, you will be saved. Then he shouted, as only a primitive Methodist can, Young man, look to Jesus Christ. There and then the cloud was gone. The darkness had rolled away. In that moment I saw the sun. And I could have risen that moment and sung with the most enthusiastic of them of the precious blood of Jesus Christ. Let's pray. God, I, every week I find myself asking for the same thing, that you would make us brave in the world around us. We know, Lord, that there is nothing in us that would have caused you to love us and to choose us, to set your affection upon us. And we know that we stand before you because of what Christ did on our behalf, having earned nothing of your love, and yet standing on a mountain unshakable. It is what we do not deserve. We know that there are those in the world around us, in our community, in our places of work who are lost, Lord, who need to hear the message of salvation. We know that your elect and your chosen are out there. And so you, we ask that you would send us out like the shepherd for the one that was lost. Give us courage. And Lord, give us a front row seat to see the miraculous happen as hearts are changed through the power of the gospel. Lord, we would be shaped by the gospel. Give us an eagerness, we pray. Amen.